Welcome to the Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm your co-host, Matt Bernico. And I'm your other co-host, Dean Dutloff. Dean, I don't know, um, well, I guess I do kind of know what it's like where you are, but we've been snowed in down here in the Midwest for days. I'm going a little stir crazy. <laughs> yeah, we've been snowed in here in Toronto as well, but uh, I don't know. I feel like I'm I'm enjoying it, but I also don't have like any real responsibility apart from working from home, so... <laughs> well, uh, my son also has uh, some days off school, so we've just been trying to keep it cool in any way we can here. We were throwing snowballs. That was a good time. And when we're not doing that, we've been playing all of the DLC from Zelda Breath of the Wild. <laughs> and we are more committed than ever to get this Zelda dirt bike. In this game. It's going to be great. <laughs> it is going to be great. Uh, my wife is also doing that right now. Um, but she is, uh, she told me she doesn't like the dirt bike because it takes her out of the immersiveness of the world. So she's going to earn it, but then not <laughs> use it. And I really respect that. <laughs> That's very funny. Um, here's the thing about the dirt bike that you got to know that will make it feel more immersive. Uh, Hyrule is a place where dirt bikes exist. And once you get that <laughs> under your belt, <laughs> it's like, yeah, I guess so. Yeah, there are more advanced technologies sense. in that game than uh, dirt bikes, I guess. <laughs> yeah, it's cool. Um, it's the same dirt bike that you get if you play Mario Kart 8. So there's a lot of uh, <laughs> great interconnectedness in the uh, the Mario cinematic universe. <laughs> That's good. Uh, well, welcome again to the Magnificast, a podcast about, uh, <laughs> about what video games we're playing <laughs> right now. Um, no, we're not doing it that time. We're not doing this that time. All right, folks, let's get into it. On this podcast, we read a lot of books. Um, and this week is no exception. We're reading a book that Dean and I both like a whole lot. And that's something. We read so many books, and some of them are bad. Some of them are real <laughs> stinkers. But this time, we read a good one. Um, so this week, let's see. We're gonna, we'll are gonna we talk about it more in a minute. But we're going to talk very explicitly about a book called Revolutionary Forgiveness, Feminist Reflections on Nicaragua by the Amanacita Collective. It's a really neat book. And we'll talk about it a lot in a minute. But um, that, pro- that probably gives away already what we're going to be talking about in this episode. Um the Nicaraguan Revolution. Uh, when it comes to Christianity and the left, <laughs> there's a lot of interesting things to talk about, a lot of great history. And if you don't believe me, do I have 250 episodes of a podcast for you to listen <laughs> to? Um, but if you do believe me, great. Um, one of the most interesting things in that long history of Christianity and the left, or however you want to frame that particular niche, um, is I think the Nicaraguan Revolution. It's super interesting. It's a historical moment that we always find ourselves coming back to on this podcast. Um, maybe it's not the most important. I don't know. But to me, it seems like one that is incredibly important, or at least it's very important for my own brain and my own sort of self-understanding of what um, what religion and politics um, working together might look like. So we will talk about the specifics of Nicaraguan Revolution in just a minute. But broadly speaking, it's a really interesting time to look at if you are interested in the ways that politics and Christianity can mutually inform one another in a you know pretty overt revolutionary situation. Like I've said, we talked about Nicaragua a lot before in this podcast. We talked about Ernesto Cardinal, one of the sort of main figures um, in, not the main figure in the revolution necessarily, but definitely an important figure in the post-revolutionary society for sure. Um, And we've talked about uh, the revolution more broadly. Um, We reference it probably every other episode, (laughs) I would imagine. Um, But anyways, we found a pretty interesting, not new, but new to us, a pretty interesting new to us book that offers up a really unique perspective on the revolution with regards to Christianity and also with regards to feminism. So that's pretty wild. Um, So yeah, this week we're going to do a little bit of a book report on this great book, once again, called Revolutionary Forgiveness, Feminist Reflections on Nicaragua, um, written by the Amanacita Collective. 
Um, that's a that is a name I will probably say wrong a thousand times in this podcast. <laughs> um, well, anyways, a book report. Maybe you're already reaching for the pause button on your phone. Maybe you're already unplugging your headphones. You don't want to listen to something about a book because you're listening to a podcast for a reason. <laughs> but I promise if you stick with us, you'll hear uh, some of the very interesting observations that a handful of theologians make about uh, the revolution and forgiveness. Those are the two big themes that we're going to probably be talking through, revolution and forgiveness. Um, and we'll talk about how those ideas play out in the Nicaraguan revolution in particular, but also about how like um, how forgiveness, I think, is kind of the big one, how forgiveness ends up being like a very political idea in ways that you might not think about it um, in your everyday life, right? Forgiveness for a lot of Christians, especially in uh, evangelical Christians in, in North America, it's uh, it means, you know, a very individualistic type of forgiveness. You go up to the altar, you get saved, Jesus forgives you of your sins, and that's great. But in this book, it works out a little bit differently, and you are going to want to hear about how – I don't know. I feel like I'm a car salesman right now <laughs> when I say all that. Um, anyways, the book is super interesting. It's definitely a, a cool way to reflect on a wild historical moment. But beyond the historical aspect, I think the book is really instructive in how it parses out some pretty hard ideas around revolutionary violence – around um, conversion, what it means to like, you know, really take up a cause and um, also uh, around forgiveness and uh, how, how that works out in politics. So um, I don't want to sell this book short as being a boring book report on a podcast, but I do want to say it's a very cool book. Um, it's just been recently republished, I guess, by Wiffenstock, and uh, you should go read it if you're interested in liberation theology, because I don't know, it's a perspective you're not going to hear in many other places. Yeah, and I think, too, just to maybe explain why this book and not so many others on Nicaragua. I mean, they're all good. All the books on Nicaragua are good, uh, you know. Except they're bad. Except the bad the ones. The bad ones are, are bad, bad ones. yeah. Uh, yeah of course. But, uh, you know, we've talked about some books on this podcast before. Lots of Ernesto Cardinal books uh, about Nicaragua. We've talked to some pretty interesting folks who have sort of histories or studies of Nicaragua, like... Um, just in the last year, we talked with Stephen uh, Hennigan, for example, about a great book he wrote about Ernesto Cardinal and uh, some other interesting kind of literary figures in, in the revolution. We talked to Margaret Randall about her experience in the Nicaraguan Revolution. So there's lots of good stuff. But this book is so unique because um, just kind of as a, a form or a genre, it is written in this collective way. So it's written by basically 13 people, 12 women and one man. And uh, we can talk a little bit more about that in a moment. But it's so cool because it is a sort of on the ground reflection uh, that really picks up a lot of theological themes from these solidarity trips to Nicaragua. And then they're kind of reflecting back on what that means for them as U.S. citizens in particular. And I think that is such a cool approach to a book, uh, both a theology book and a book about the Nicaraguan Revolution, right? Because it's sort of uh, making that history active, making that moment active. And I think it's like a really cool model. I wish there were a thousand books like this for many other countries. So anyway, we'll get to more of that in a moment. Um, but first, we should probably talk a little bit about the Nicaraguan Revolution itself, maybe to like set the stage a bit. Let's do it. All right. So the first thing you got to know about the Nicaraguan Revolution is everything that happened before that we got there, before we got to the revolution. Why did they need one in the first place? And uh, I'll try my best to summarize a lot of history in a brief amount of time. Um, we'll see how it goes. 
So Anastasia Somoza was the big bad president of Nicaragua during the Sandinista Revolution. So he's the enemy. He's the the bad guy that gets everybody finally riled up enough to uh, have a revolution. But he was actually the latest in a, a family dynasty of violence that had ruled the country since 1936. So a long time to be ruled by the same family. Uh, that family gained power after killing Augusto Sandino, who was like a kind of peasant folk hero uh, who led a rebellion against a U.S. occupation of Nicaragua. So the United States had already been occupying that country for a long time. In fact, uh, Dorothy Day, um, one of the founders of the Catholic Worker, had done uh, some solidarity work around Sandino in particular. Pretty interesting U.S. connection. Uh, so that made the Somoza dynasty anyway a loyal U.S. ally because they you know, dispose of Sandino. And Sandino also became a symbol of resistance. So there's this kind of long tension already built into that country. Uh, the Somozas had presidential power, but even if they were out of the office, they would like hold, I guess, sort of power strings because they were massive landowners and they continued to control like the National Guard. So they always had power in like one way or another, whether it was militarily, electorally, or through uh, being like basically the primary land landowners in the country. And their rule was definitely marked by inequalities, you could guess, but also torture and executions. Maybe the, like the example I always gave when I would teach about the revolution is uh, Anastasio Somoza himself was a, a part owner of a company that took the blood of poor Nicaraguans and sold it to the United States. So like literal uh, vampiric capitalism. Um, somehow that's not the grossest thing that he did yeah. either, which I think is kind of surprising. Yeah, actually, there's a lot of that in this book, too. Um, some tough stories to stomach. But uh, yeah, it's uh, brutal. So inspired uh, by the National Liberation Front of the FLN in Algeria in the 50s, a bunch of people and organizations founded their own FLN or National Liberation Front in Nicaragua in 1961 to try to oppose uh, Somoza. And later they they added Sandino's name to it to become the FSLN, or in English, the Sandinista National Liberation Front. So really calling that original opposition to uh, U.S. occupation in mind. And the FSLN, they were an armed movement, right? So they carried out a bunch of dangerous, violent missions for a while. And at first that was really re repellent to a lot of Christians. There was like a lot of debate in Nicaragua about whether or not that was the right thing. And also a debate within the left, right? Like, um, the communist movement was not part of the FSLN at first and all that kind of stuff. But uh, eventually the FSLN also created some other opportunities for like protest and demonstrations and that sort of thing and um, got involved in, you know, urban organizing and, and working with the workers movement and stuff. So uh, it kind of expanded that growth to become a more invitational movement. And uh, over time, the FSLN actively invited Christians in particular to participate which kind of like came at exactly the right moment when liberation theology in Latin America in the 60s and 70s was like getting going. So when the revolution was like obviously going to win in 1979, even the bishops of Nicaragua made it a point to endorse the armed struggle using principles from papal documents, which is pretty wild. Um, in November of that year, they released a pastoral letter endorsing socialism. So even in the, the hierarchy was uh, moved at least to, to make that statement. And the revolutionary government included four priests and a bunch of lay Christians as well. Um, base communities, which are kind of like the organizational unit of liberation theology, they were super important building popular support for that revolution. And then after the revolution succeeded, so that was 79 and Jimmy Carter was the president, 
when uh, Reagan took over, the U.S. began funding a really brutal civil war against the revolution throughout the 80s. Um, there's a lot of kind of euphemisms for it. Sometimes it's called like uh, the uh, the Dirty War or the Contra War or, uh, you know, lo- lots of names. But anyway, if you've ever heard about the Contras, that is who they're talking about. Um, it's a kind of paramilitary right wing force of uh, basically fascists who Ronald Reagan sent millions and millions and millions of U.S. dollars to. Um, and Congress, too, you know, not just Reagan, a lot of very bad Congress people as well <laughs> did that. Um, and there was a, a bunch of uh, bad scandals. The Iran-Contra affair is part of that, uh, you know, money laundering through it. The drug trade was a part of it. Lots of really gross, shady things that Reagan did. But anyway, that's the re- the revolution in brief. It takes us up to the point where this book appears in the mid 80s. So right in the thick of uh, the, the Contra war and, uh, you know, kind of. Uh, on the one hand, celebrating the the victory of the revolution with that long history dating all the way back to Sandino, but also in the middle of uh, a massive sustained imperialist opposition campaign by their own government, the Reagan government. Yeah, I don't know, man. Pretty good. Pretty pretty good history in, I don't know, a few minutes. Thanks. You can turn that one into your animatic on YouTube. <laughs> uh, that's what we need is an animatic of you talking about um, the Contra. Um, okay. <laughs> So, yeah, this book all takes place kind of in the early 80s. Um, It is, uh, well, here, I'll tell you about the book kind of conceptually. Uh, But, right, it's taking place in the 80s. These these 13 people who, again, are mostly women. They're from North America. They make up this thing called the Amanecita Collective. They write about a series of trips that they took to Nicaragua. And um, I think there was maybe like five or six in total. Some of them went more than that. Some of them, I don't know, didn't. But anyways... um, this group of people from North America who all have kind of like a theological education in one way or another uh, from a whole handful of different um, different types of religious backgrounds and faith backgrounds. There's, I don't know, a Unitarian Universalist. There's a bunch of Episcopalians. There's Moravian. There's a few Roman Catholics. All of, all of our faves. They're all in there, I guess. <laughs> Even some of our not-so-faves, um, but it doesn't matter. Anyways, um, the book is really fascinating because, let's see, it's the observations and lessons that they pull from meeting with these Christian-based communities, from meeting with people like Ernesto Carnal, like uh, meeting with uh, like Tomas Borges, who is like the, the leader of the FSLN, um, and also just meeting with a bunch of just regular Nicaraguan people, <laughs> right? Like, that's just like all of these kind of people. They're, they're meeting with them. They're asking them about um, what's happening in the country, what they think about it. They're asking them about their faith and how that kind of plays into it. Um, so that's all fascinating, but it's all happening in the background of the early 80s. So, you know, there, it's not like this, it's not like the revolution is over. It's like um, people, I, at one point in the book, they mention um, that people still in their front yards have like uh, trenches that they've dug because like who knows when the Contras will show up and like start shooting people again. So it's like um, they're making these observations that are sort of like theologically and politically important, but they're doing them in the background of a country that's like still very much under siege by uh, uh, U.S. funded right wing death squads. Um, So a pretty intense sort of like slice of history and like way to talk about it. Um, It's also really interesting uh, noting how the book is written. It's sort of unusual, I suppose. You know, usually you have uh, a single author and they're kind of just telling you something or another or, you know, they're uh, synthesizing a bunch of different people's takes into a book. But this is different. So the chapters are split up into thematic sections um, with like, you know, sort of some narration in them. Um, There's um, an intro by Dorothy Zuela, which is great. 
uh, but there's a section on conversion, a section on revolution, a section on forgiveness, and then a conclusion about like what you do with this information. Um, but the cool thing about the book is that the narration is always kind of relying on bits of personal writing and reflection from members of the collective around these topics. So like the book is like trying to sew together a bunch of diverse opinions and ideas and thoughts and, and um, takes all at once. And it is a, such a cool way to write a reflective book like this because you get like instances where the members of the collective are bringing different observations or even outright disagreeing with one another about what they think is happening or what they think is, you know, what, what should be drawn from this kind of thing. So it's it's a pretty cool book conceptually. And also it's a great like kind of artifact of the time. I'm, I'm really excited about it. <laughs> yeah, like I said, I wish there were more books like this, you know, just being able to I mean, there's so many things about it that make it really valuable, like being able to be a voice of a collective is already very interesting. You know, like you get a window into the conversation that's happening among a group of folks who've been together for a long time. Um, you also get, I think, uh, yeah, that that diversity of opinion that is so interesting. It, it's kind of like it's not the same as reading the Gospel in Salontaname, for example, but there's something similar there in that the energy of the dialogue allows different issues to uh, emerge that might not emerge in the same way if you were just like, you know, a philosopher or theologian trying to like make an argument, you know, like, yeah, the, this is like when they talk about violence, for example, they're they're talking about an issue that they all have different experiences with different interests in. And uh, the way that they're going to negotiate that is so different than trying to convince like an imaginary audience or something. So it's <laughs> it's really neat. And again, being a, a product of that solidarity trip uh, or a series of trips, by different people at different times. It also just kind of reveals so many things. And uh, like I said, I wish more people were able to write this kind of thing. It would be so neat to just have more records of, you know, what do people make when they go to another country? One thing I love doing, like maybe uh, I have too many books like this on my shelf, but like I love reading memoirs of missionaries who have been involved in uh, solidarity work at different points in their life. Because, like, that particular genre just gives you a, a really unique lens, I think, on uh, things like liberation theology, right? It's not just a bunch of ideas or doctrines or commitments, but it's a, a living movement with actual human beings involved. And, uh, yeah, just having kind of the dispatches of that and having people reflect on it from, you know, my own context as a U.S. citizen or a person in Canada it makes all the difference for thinking about how we would also relate to something like that. So it's not just, you know, out there somewhere else. Mm -hmm. Totally. Well, let me give an example about how like this particular way of writing a book actually activates theology in a really particular way. Um, and also tells you a history in a way that's, I think very interesting. Um, okay. So listeners of this podcast will know I'm not a huge fan of reading theology. I think it's boring and usually it feels very inconsequential but this book makes me feel very convicted about it. <laughs> maybe I'll feel differently about it. Or maybe if there are more theology books written like this one, I would feel differently. But okay. Anyways, so um, I mentioned a minute ago that the very first chapter is about conversion and the second chapter is about revolution. And those two chapters are really intensely interconnected um, in a way that I think is at least was to me a bit surprising or it didn't it didn't initially make sense in my brain. But then I, I got into it and I figured it all out. Um, so instead of reading the... Uh, a, an excerpt from the section on conversion, though I want to talk about the section about revolution because it kind of brings them together in this way that is super helpful for me to think about them. Um, okay, so conversion. If you're not a church person, 
again, great for you. <laughs> Living, live I guess, an amazing life, um, <laughs> unsettled by the uh, the psychic damage that the church has given me. But um, uh, the conversion, you know, when we think about it in the context of evangelicalism, we think about it in the context of conservative Christianity or just North American Christianity. It is like about a commitment that you yourself are making to to God, to church, one of these things, right? I mean, for evangelicals, it means that, you know, you were at a summer camp and you somebody gave an altar call and you went up there and you converted, you gave your life to Jesus Christ and what and what a great thing that was, right? Um, there's all kinds of other ways that people talk about conversion. There's a whole kind of conversation around this for sure. But um, to me, it's never been very interesting, <laughs> I guess, Um because I don't know, uh, you know, you're supposed to you're supposed to kind of go through this moment and God does something in you where you're changed, you know, irrevocably. There's something happens to you. And I don't know, I think probably at least in my case, and I'm sure probably in the case of others, um, that's not really how it works. Right. <laughs> you're, you're you're converted for like an afternoon and then you something else happens <laughs> and you forget or whatever. Anyways, this um, this book has a lot to do with uh, conversion. And, and uh, there's maybe a little bit of a different meaning going on here, but it ties in directly with sort of a commitment to a revolutionary society. That makes me very excited. All right. This is in uh, this is the very first uh, paragraph of the section on revolution. Uh, so the narrator, uh, I mean, the collective as a whole, I guess, is writing this part, but they say this. Conversion is not the interiorized result of a magical zap by God. We are not spiritual renegades one day and saints the next. Our lives and our faith are more complicated. Conversion is a difficult process of spiritual transformation, which involves the turning around of our commitments and priorities as sisters and brothers in the human family. Conversion has to do with where we put our money, time, and our energy. Okay, so conversion is not a thing that happens all at once. It's a thing that you kind of practice. It's a, it's a commitment you take up day after day. Very interesting. I like this. But the part that makes it tie into revolution is kind of the way that they themselves on this trip become converted, right? Not to Christianity, or I mean, maybe to Christianity in a different way of thinking, but to a type of revolutionary project within Nicaragua to a sort of ideology of, you know, Sandinismo, um, but also to like a type of Christianity that the people of Nicaragua are expressing in this moment that they find like really connected to the revolution. So um, that section about conversion is followed right uh, by a... Um, you know, like one of these excerpts from one of the members of the collective. So uh, her name is Anne, which is not super important, but there it is. <laughs> Anyways, so they, um, on, on this trip in Nicaragua, they go and meet with this, um, this group of mothers called Mothers of Heroes and Martyrs. So in the sort of moment in the, in the 1980s, um, this is a group of women who have lost family members to the revolution in one way or the other. Um, so they're all kind of telling these stories about their um, about their their family that have, you know, like that the, the they've lost. And um, this is this is like what starts swaying some of these people, these members of the collective. So I guess I'll I'll read this bit here. Um, the third woman to speak to us said after the triumph, my son was the triumph is the the end of the revolution. I guess like, you know, they went they oust Somoza. Um, things are still up in the air, but anyways, that, that's what the triumph means. After the triumph, my son was in the reserve battalion because he didn't want to see the people exploited by the Contras. In 1982, in the mountains, at the age of 18, he fell in combat. They brought my son to me dead. We're still suffering the same way. My son grew up having a gun in his hands. And after that, it says this. This is uh, the reflection from one of the, the, from the collective as a whole. 
What do we know about revolution, we who are North Americans, U.S. citizens? What in our lives prepares us for meeting the people and hearing the stories of revolution in Nicaragua? Many or most people in the United States view revolutions and their causes as in abstract and monolithic terms. For instance, believing that all revolutions have the roots in communism or atheism, and that all are somehow caused by the Soviet Union. So they go on to talk about how, like, these moments of, like, talking with um, the the mothers of, like, you know, I guess fallen soldiers and the revolution, it, like, wins them over. They are committed. It's not, it's not like a zap moment, but it is a moment where they, um, there's, like, there's, you know, there's more of a rupture in their life, and they find this kind of new moment to live differently and to this new revolutionary possibility. I think it's very cool. Um, it's such an interesting way of talking about conversion. It's also such an interesting thing to kind of bring to the table where it's like, you know, what do what do people in North America know about revolution? Um, not much. <laughs> and uh, but, but how do you become converted? I, what, or what do you do? What do you do as somebody who lives in the imperial core hearing these types of stories? Um, and like, you know, what, what can you do other than being converted by them, right? Like you're won over, you feel like their cause is maybe now part of your cause. Yeah, the stuff on conversion is really interesting in this book in general, because you're kind of invited to participate in that process with the authors. There are so many stories of them coming to terms with their own identities as uh, white citizens of the U.S. and women in the U.S. and in some cases, lesbians in the U.S. really going to... Uh, a totally different country and trying to parse out, you know, what do those identities mean in a country like revolutionary Nicaragua? And it's so interesting to see them um, kind of allow all those things to get mixed up together, <laughs> like um, through their own process of conversion, they're able to uh, interrogate their own identities, but they also don't lose their position of uh, criticism as well. Um, we'll talk about that in a minute. Maybe like they have some really cool, uh, reflections on maybe the the shortcomings of the revolution uh, in some aspects, but it's really neat to just be able to, um, yeah, be uh, allowed <laughs> to uh, see some of the vulnerability of the authors here who uh, are really willing to just share, you know, what, what challenged them, what kinds of things they learned uh, up close with the revolution and uh, figure out what it means to to be a person in the United States on the other side of that kind of trip. Yeah, totally. I mean, um, they are very vulnerable in their reflections. Um, there are some parts, even in the early on sections of the book, where uh, some of them are very frustrated, <laughs> I think, mm-hmm. with um, with Nicaragua. I mean, and and um, you can kind of see they are very open to telling you that, like, um, their privilege is, like, shining through. You know, they're very annoyed by... I don't know, having to carry around toilet paper, for example, or something, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> They're pretty open about that. Um, but they also have some really interesting things to say. I mean, this is this is a, um, you know, this book has, um, it's written from a sort of like feminist liberation theology perspective, which I think is very cool. Um, I'm all about it. It does not foreground the role of like capitalism necessarily. Um, it, I mean, it talks about it. Obviously, you can't really talk about the story without, but it does um, foreground a lot of really interesting conversations, though, about racism and sexism, um, and also like homophobia and heterosexism. Um, it, there's there's lots of reflection on that and how it plays out, which is cool. I'm very into it. Um, yeah, I don't know, Dean. Do you want to talk about any of those spots? Maybe we can start talking about the the racism section. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the uh, the racism section is really interesting. So I mentioned, you know, when they're kind of going through that conversion process, they they gain a lot, but they don't give up. Uh, a kind of critical perspective too. And one thing they're interested in going through Nicaragua is also 
paying attention to the the minoritized people and people on the margins as well. And when in the racism section, they're especially interested in how the revolution deals with uh, indigenous peoples in the region, which was a huge uh, kind of point of conflict. Um, the Sandinista revolution had a, a number of policies with respect to the Mosquito Indians in particular that were all very complicated and complicated, too, by U.S. imperialism, which was also trying to win over indigenous peoples to create a, a wedge and a rift. Um, and lots of uh, bad policies on both sides. Like, genuinely, <laughs> this is not liberal both sides in it. <laughs> it's like the U.S. government did some very bad stuff to try to weaponize indigenous peoples against the Sandinistas, and the Sandinistas uh, didn't win themselves any revolutionary favor by creating policies that further marginalized indigenous peoples. So, a complicated issue. And they, they wade into that a little bit with some nuance, for sure, and uh, in ways that are really interesting um Ernesto Cardinal also talks a lot about that by the way the uh the way the Sandinistas did wrong by the indigenous peoples and also tried to sort of correct course over time um eventually they lost the civil war so I don't know probably did not improve life for indigenous people as I would guess in the 90s but <laughs> nevertheless uh all very complicated and uh the collective does a good job drawing it out um, I think one, there are two especially interesting conversations in here, one on sexism and the other you mentioned on homophobia and heterosexism. Because the book is themed around feminist reflections on Nicaragua, I think that's kind of maybe the strongest material because that's what the the authors are especially good at, at talking about. Um, when they talk about sexism, for example, they do say that they meet with lots of women, lots of girls, lots of organizing groups, um, working on issues of sexual inequality. And uh, they say that they think the Nicaraguan revolution is uh, improving their lives. And so the members of the collective are like, that's great. However, they don't, you know, let the revolution off the hook. And for example, I'll just read one uh, paragraph here. They say, it's clear that the Nicaraguan government is working to counteract many of the effects of sexism. However, there are still many problems caused by deeply rooted machismo, which is still very much of a problem. We were keenly aware of all the posters and newscasts we saw featuring the leaders of the country, the nine-man ruling junta. Male faces all the time. Not all that different from home. Many of the Nicaraguan women with whom we spoke agreed wholeheartedly with us on the subject of sexism in Nicaragua. Uh, as Milieu Vargas, a member of the Council of the State, told us, to call yourself a revolutionary, you really have to accept equality, but in practicality it's hard. Now we're trying to convince compañeros that it's better to be equal. And then they uh, go on to sort of record a lot of words from Nicaraguan women in particular, pointing out, you know, things they're still working through. Uh, and maybe just in the same way that conversion doesn't happen overnight, uh, they're really impressive. Revolution doesn't happen yeah, overnight. Exactly, exactly. And uh, you really have to kind of target it at all levels. Um, yeah, that's right. There's a section where um, one of the members of the collective, I can't remember which one now, they were telling the story about how they were uh, visiting a farm or whatever. And um, the the guide that was taking them to the farm was male, this guy. And um, he asked some of them, some of the women that were there, that they, they, they or he, he told them they should stay in Nicaragua and have babies. And they were like, kind of disgusted by yeah, this. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly yeah there's a bunch of stories like that too right and even of uh, women in nicaragua being like you know my husband left me because i supported the revolution and he didn't and that was like a flashpoint in our relationship and it, and i supported it because i thought you know i could 
sort of stand to gain as a woman, right? And uh, and my husband didn't like that, right? So, like, um, there's a lot of interesting nuance there uh, as well. But uh, And even pointing out some conflicts and contradictions where, like, women who were invested in the Sandinista revolution then felt marginalized by the way that the revolution was not moving quickly enough. And this is a, a pretty common story. I think you hear in a lot of... Uh, reflections on from women in the revolution like a lot of uh leaders in the sound like the actual fighting of the revolution were women um but they weren't necessarily rewarded with like governmental posts the way that men were so mm-hmm. yeah really um cool to kind of see them parse that out i mean not cool as an issue but <laughs> cool to have somebody do their homework right. i guess Draw attention to it yeah. yeah totally um the other section that's really fascinating is uh that one on homophobia So uh, a few of the members of the collective talk about their experience as lesbians in the United States and in Nicaragua, and they are especially interested in the treatment of gay people there. Um, And I'll read uh, just a little bit from that section, too. So they write, it's an indication of some degree of tolerance that there are no laws against homosexuality in Nicaragua. When asked what the difference before and after the revolution was for lesbians and gay men, Milu Vargas, again, same guy they were just talking to, responded, we haven't paid attention before or now. It's a personal decision. Perhaps now there's a more generous feeling. There's no official policy and no organizational pressure group. Uh, They continue, like the collective basically continues to sort of press that issue wherever they go in Nicaragua, and they get like a wide variety of responses, um, some Mm -hmm. that you can probably guess, right? Like some people are like, oh, there's no gay people in Nicaragua, right? Right. (laughs) (laughs) That's a a response they get. Or uh, they get responses from people who say, uh, oh, I don't know, like there's probably gay people who, who cares, like whatever, they can be gay, but it's like not an issue, which means it's also not a priority, right? Like thinking it through. So you get a lot of interesting kind of mixed perspectives on it. But um, I think some of the most interesting writing is actually just the reflections from the collective about that, right? Just thinking about their own kind of identities and how that uh, is related to kind of what they're seeing and negotiating um, it reminds me, too, of if you ever read Ernesto Cardinal's travel diary called In Cuba, when he's in Cuba, um, there are a few sections in there where he is uh, asking around about gay people in Cuba. And you get some similar kind of thoughts where there's people right. who are like, oh, there's no gay people in Cuba, while there are other thoughts, other people who are recognized gay people are there and see it as a, a justice issue that they need to be included. So interesting to kind of see some of that in Nicaragua in particular, I think. You know, if I had to have guessed, I would have felt like maybe uh, it was more socially conservative than that. Um, so on the one hand, it's kind of encouraging to see that there's a lot more openness there than maybe I would have wrongly assumed. But also, obviously, uh, lots of other work to do. So just a, a cool, very unique window into uh, asking around about a particular group that I don't usually ever hear talked about in the context of the Nicaraguan Revolution. Yeah, absolutely. It's great to draw that attention to it. Um I mean, because you don't ever hear about it. Um, there's one of the people, one, one of the members of the collective, um, their name in the book is Margarita. And I like their commentation, their commentary the best. That's um, <laughs> always very interesting. Um, anyways, there's a, there's a section under the homophobia uh, heading where this common, uh, this member of the collective, Margarita, she's like <laughs> very upset, I think, <laughs> about, uh, I mean, rightfully so, <laughs> about this like sort of like um, the the hemming and hawing and the weird sort of uh, attitude around around gay people. Mm-hmm. Um, she identifies herself in the book as, I mean, she's North American, um, but she's also, she has like sort of a Cuban heritage and she's also a lesbian. So she has like this very interesting response. Not interesting. It's like, 
uh, it's an entertaining response. It's a powerful response. It's a good one, I think. Um, so she is. Um, it's really fascinating because, just like you said, I mean, in Cuba, it's a it's a problem too. Um, uh, during during this particular period, um, she says this. Fidel doesn't know me. I'm different. I'm a lesbian Latina. That is not revolutionary, he says, but I am revolutionary. I'm sexual. Did you see that? You were afraid that I had a Cuban sexuality? I do know. I'm like you. I love women. All women. <laughs> Anyways, it just goes on. And I love it. It's great. Yeah. Um, I mean, that particular period, I don't know, people on the left, um, I mean, probably including us sometimes, like kind of romanticize how cool it is because it is cool. Um, but there are these pieces that, uh, you know, we should think more critically about. And that's one of them for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Um, there's a lot of other interesting stuff in the revolution section, uh, but we have to maybe move on to forgiveness or else I'll never get there. But I do want to pick out uh, two more things. One is their conversation on violence. Um, and the other is a, a neat little piece of advice from Ernesto Cardinal that they got to U.S. revolutionaries. Um, so the first on violence, uh, they have a great kind of discussion. It Violence comes up a lot in the book. It's like the collective is clearly trying to work out what they make of it and they keep foregrounding it against, um, you know, in front of like that, all that history with Somoza. And there's a neat moment where they're all having a conversation. They talk about Gandhi and everything else. And, uh, this woman, Elaine says, nonviolence is a negative term. I prefer something like peace by whatever means necessary, even if the means are violent. Plus, I think that we need to make a distinction between violence used to exploit people in an oppressive situation and violence used to defend and liberate oneself from a destructive and dehumanizing situation. In my opinion, these two types of violence are not the same thing, and to use the same the word violence for both situations obscures this. Uh, the violence versus nonviolence issue is not an issue for me. And they uh, kind of go on to have a, a really interesting debate about like the discourse around pacifism in general, and like pacifists who are able to see connections between broader structural issues and ones who can't. Uh, and eventually the collective has this kind of really interesting observation where they say, uh, uh, we are critical of certain aspects of the nonviolent movement in the United States. What many of us see as missing in the nonviolence movement of the predominantly white male radical Roman Catholic left is a liberation perspective that includes an analysis of the connections among, as Margarita pointed out again, very cool lady, uh, imperialism, <laughs> militarism, and capitalism on the one hand and classism, racism, sexism, and heterosexism on the other. Those of us who work from an explicitly feminist perspective find we cannot accept an analysis that does not take into account the effect of its pronouncements have on the oppressed, particularly on women of all colors and children. So just a super interesting, um, reflection and i think like it's true you know when we think about the face of nonviolence in the u.s that conversation is often dominated by white roman catholic <laughs> radical males uh you know there's some other uh white roman catholic women involved <laughs> for sure too uh dorothy day and lots of really cool nuns but you know it's it's worth pointing out that like I don't know, they went to Nicaragua, they had this conversion experience, and they sort of came back with that by virtue of, uh, yeah, that kind of feminist engagement. Totally. Well, in this uh, revolution section, before we move on, uh, Ernesto Cardinal gets the last word, which is um, cool. Good for him. <laughs> I think <laughs> it's pretty fun, actually. So, um, you know, they, uh, they they bring this kind of conversation about... Um, about sort of revolutionary Christians uh, and their role to play in the revolution, which, uh, like Dean said uh, a while ago, they did. <laughs> Christians did all kinds of things in the revolution, even took up arms. And isn't that fascinating, actually? Um, anyway, so they brought this to, to Ernesto Cardinal. And they, they'd say, Ernesto Cardinal, 
this is great. We lo- we love this idea. <laughs> but <laughs> the thing is, have you seen Christianity in the United States, they say? I mean, not really. They don't say that. But basically, that's what they're trying to say. Uh, Christianity in the United States, it's embarrassing. It's regressive. It is not... Um, there's not a lot of revolutionaries to be found within those movements. And this is like the thick of uh, Reagan era. Yeah, exactly. So uh, it, not as bad as now, but pretty bad. <laughs> um, anyways, uh, so Ernesto Cardinal is trying to push back and telling them, well, you know, um, the church everywhere has this problem where there are some people who are in the church who are progressive and they want to, uh, you know, do do the work of justice. And some people don't. And he kind of says this in a few different ways. And they, um, the the members of the collective are really like, <laughs> they're really giving Cardinal a hard time. They're like, but but like, are you sure? Have you seen these <laughs> churches in the United States? They are very bad. And Ernesto Cardinal has this kind of um, this insight, and I I think it's um, on the one hand very simplistic, but a pretty good observation just the same. Um, so this is how it goes. Ernesto Cardinal is quiet for a moment, and then he nods. <laughs> but you in the United States can be revolutionary. And the progressive revolutionary Christians there, just as here in Nicaragua, know you can. It's the same church throughout the world. There are those who work for and those who work against basic social change. Each of us must decide which side are we on, mustn't we? So, Ernesto Cardinal, um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, you could you could draw statistics about the, ty- the, the amount of Christians, uh, according to which denomination, vote for which party, or who are involved in what type of politics. You could pull all those complica- complicated things out. But Ernesto Cardinal just gives us the, the most simple point that, um, yeah, some Christians are reactionary and some aren't. Which one are you going to be? And I appreciate it. <laughs> yeah. It's good, right? I mean, the conversation about Christianity as a political force in the United States is a very interesting one to have, and I'm here for it, and I want to have them in depth. But on the other hand, when it comes to organizing, when it comes to, like, doing something, that's really the question you need to be asking yourself, right? That's the question about um, – it's a question about revolution, I guess, in, in you know, whatever that word might actually mean in the sense of the United States context. But it's also a question about conversion. Um, you know, which side are you on? Are you on the, the the side that actually wants to do justice or the other side that doesn't care? Um, and that is, uh, I don't know, maybe a good uh, a good cap on how uh, conversion and revolution are interconnected ideas. Yeah, I love it, too, because it is so tongue in cheek from Cardinal, who does have a good sense of humor for sure. But like. You know, he had lived in the United States for quite a while before moving back to Nicaragua. So it's not like he didn't know what he was talking about. And uh, I think the challenge is a good one to pose, right? Like, I don't know, like before the FLN and uh, when they were in the thick of Somoza and the church was also benefiting from that relationship in a lot of ways, it probably seemed even more impossible there than it would have in the U.S. So, you know, it's a it's good to pose that very simplistic question sometimes. Which side are you on? The classic one. It's the most important question, I've got to say. Um, all right, let's move on to talking about the section about forgiveness. We'll probably have to speed through it a bit because we're already kind of... <laughs> we talked about revolution too long, which is always our problem. All right. Um, so the, the section that is towards the end of the book is about forgiveness. And it's a really fascinating one with a lot of interesting things. So let me just get right into it. This is how the chapter opens. Um, this is an observation from Laura from The Collective. I learned in Nicaragua that forgiveness is a revolutionary virtue. It is revolutionary not because everyone is forgiven or because forgiveness is all in God's hands. Rather, God is part of the revolution. Forgiveness is revolutionary because the former victims of an unjust system, such as that of Somoza, are able to see the systematic character of victimization and recognize thereby their former oppressors also as victims. Those who forgive 
are prepared to blame the way society was structured rather than simply the individuals who participate in it. The individuals are held responsible primarily for the future, not for the past. They are given a chance to change rather than being cast away. So obviously a pretty revolutionary and also extremely Christian way to think about the idea of forgiveness, but also an extremely challenging one. Mm -hmm. Um, In the abstract, this sounds easy. Um, you're going you're gonna to hold people accountable for the future and not for the past. You're recognizing the ways that your oppressors are a part of a system of oppression. Um, all cool ideas that I like a lot. I'm a big fan of them. But then the chapter goes on to tell you exactly what the oppressors, who are a part of a system, <laughs> were up to. And it is kind of hard to stomach. Um, I don't really want to say too much of it on the podcast because it's probably pretty disturbing. You don't need it in your ears. But, you know, things like torture, things like, I mean, child soldiers, it's awful. It's really bad. Yeah. Um, but uh, the part of the revolutionary process in Nicaragua was finding ways to forgive um, the Somosaistas, the National Guard, um, and find figure out, like, what to do with them or what reconciliation looks like or what forgiveness looks like. And it is tough. It is tough, for sure. It's super tough, but it's also maybe to summarize it. I mean, they offer the story of uh, Tomas Borges, who um, was uh, one of the revolutionary leaders. Uh, And I think it really stands in for a lot of the other things. I mean, you can read all the bad stuff on your own. Uh, This is a great summary. So they say uh, the story of Comandante Tomas Borges and his torturer has become for our times a parable of forgiveness, no less revealing than holy scriptures. After the triumph in 1979, the new Minister of the Interior, Tomas Borges, was visiting the prisons which housed members of Somoza's National Guard, visiting the leaders of those who had tortured and murdered up to 50,000 Nicaraguan women, men, and children during the insurrection. It is reported that on one of his visits to the prisons, Comandante Borges came upon the guardsmen who had tortured him. Uh, he was, like, brutally tortured, by the way. Yeah. Uh, when the guardsmen realized that Borges recognized him, he asked, what are you going to do to me? What is your revenge? Borges responded by extending his hand. I forgive you. That is my revenge. Uh, he uh, talks a lot more about it. Um, and also you can read a great book by Borges called Christianity and Revolution, which is about his own faith and revolution. It's it's really fascinating. But uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's a, a good kind of uh, stand in parable, I guess, for the, the kind of courage of the revolution as a whole really contained in that one moment. Mm hmm. Yeah, here's one more thing to illustrate this, maybe, I guess, just a bit more. Um, Okay, this is an observation from uh, one of the members of the collective named Laura, who went to a prison in Nicaragua. Uh, She went to sort of like a medium security prison. They talk about this quite a bit. Anyway, so she says this. The 50 inmates of this unguarded, unfenced prison cooperative were members of Somoza's National Guard and or the CIA-backed Contras. The prisoner who spoke with us was one of Somoza's bodyguards. The man's violent past was beyond question, but... There he stood, speaking with love about his country, his family, his fellow prisoners, and his future. I was screaming inside. How can he be forgiven? How can the poor of this country, of any country, forgive? I began to question my own work with prisoners. Uh, Laura, you learn later, is a um, a person who's interested in prison ministry. So, um, it's interesting. A vulnerable moment. Mm-hmm. I began to question my ability to forgive myself, an upper-class middle, an upper-middle-class white woman, and I began to ask myself, what is prison ministry? What is forgiveness? If we incarcerated all the wealthy, greedy business people and all the members of the Reagan administration and Mr. Reagan himself, would I still be interested in prison ministry? Would I care if these people lived or died? 
Um, my answer after our experience in Nicaragua and after a lot of thought is yes, because I now recognize that ministry with the oppressor is also part of the process of systemic change. This is such an uh, interesting thing. I mean, I feel like uh, this is not too far off from some things we've said in the podcast even last week, right? Like the whole point of loving your neighbor or loving your enemy, right, is to make sure that they can't hurt other people or hurt themselves because, you know, forcing people into poverty twists your soul up in all kinds of bad ways and it makes you a really horrible person and probably hard to live with yourself. Um, but this observation is, is maybe along the same lines, but I think it draws out just how, like, difficult that type of work is. Um, and uh, it's definitely not something that happens overnight. Um, it's also worth saying, too, um, you know, uh, prisons are very complicated things, especially in a post-revolutionary situation. Uh, but given this, this uh, the picture of prisons that they paint in this book are radically different than anything in the United States, I guess, Uh Rehabilitation. I'm not like trying to be an apologist for prisons <laughs> or anything, um, but I guess I'm, what I'm trying to say here is that there's like a real different idea about what incarceration is about in this sort of post-revolutionary situation that uh, is worth drawing out a bit. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I think it's actually very hard to have this conversation in abolitionist circles, but it is important. I think, you know, I could be wrong about this. My feeling is abolitionists haven't really gotten around to having this very hard conversation in a big, big way, but... Maybe one day they'll have to. Um, but it is complicated. Like, uh, you know, I don't like prisons. I think that they're very bad. They don't do what we think that they do and so on. I'm an abolitionist. It's all all true. Uh, but when I talk to people who are involved in Global South uh, stuff, they often think that that is very absurd for lots of reasons. They think it's absurd because, you know, what are you going to do with all of Samoza's National Guard <laughs> after a revolution? Uh, they think it's absurd because, you know, in lots of countries uh, with little resources that do face a, a threat of fascism, you know, they, they feel they don't have any other options. Um, and also in countries like Cuba and Nicaragua, uh, the sort of situation is such that they do want their prisons to be re rehabilitative. Um, and, you know, whether or not they are, I guess, is kind of up for people to decide but you do get a stories in here that kind of suggest that the prison is more of a rehabilitative apparatus. Um, in uh, Ernesto Cardinal's in Cuba, you actually meet a few people who have been through the prison system in Cuba and uh, were rehabilitated in some interesting ways. And that's just kind of them talking about it. Uh, you know, Angela Davis herself famously uh, visited prisoners in Cuba and uh, she herself, um, you know, <laughs> was a communist, is a communist <laughs> in solidarity with countries that also had prisons and, and so on. And uh, she, you know, she spent a lot of time talking about mass incarceration in the U.S., but uh, not a lot of time talking about incarceration in those socialist countries. So all that to say, I'm not saying uh, <laughs> I'm not saying, but what about the good prison or something? So <laughs> yeah, exactly. don't get me wrong. But um, what I am saying is like it's actually very hard to talk about it uh with those kinds of situations in mind. And this book is great because it just like adds, adds a good wrinkle to kind of like to show that we have like a lot of work to do to really come up with, uh, you know, none of these are immediate concerns. We don't have a revolution on the horizon in, in the United States or Canada. It's not, not anything we have to worry about right now, but uh, it means we have a lot of things to think about. That's all. Yeah, I think that's right. Okay, um, man, we can go on and on. There's about a thousand more things I actually really want to talk about, but maybe we'll have to do that. We'll have to do it off the air, Dean. Um, anyways, <laughs> the conclusion of the book is um, just as good as the rest of it. It's kind of bringing together all these observations into a kind of like a what should we do kind of moment. Um, and there's a lot of things that we should do, like building solidarity. 
you should probably do that. <laughs> you should think about individualism. You should uh, learn about power. You should be able to, uh, you should know how to confess your own wrongdoing. All these kinds of things. They're great. They're great lessons that you can learn from this whole book. And I want to talk about them all, but we can't. But the part I do want to talk about in the conclusion that I think is pretty convicting and I think is worth um, for people, I mean, people on the left to think about, but also, I mean, Christians. This is maybe the, uh, uh, I think this book is full of things that Christians can actually lend to politics in ways that, you know, are kind of missing from the current landscape of the United States. But this is this is a big one to me, I guess. So there's a section that has the heading called Converting the Oppressor. Um, and here, I'll just read a bit of this. The bonding of the poor and others into a community willing to struggle to overthrow an oppressive regime reveals the power that comes from solidarity. What prevents the community from eventually becoming the oppressor is the community's acceptance of the responsibility to liberate the oppressor as part of its own self-liberation. Therefore, liberation spiritually adheres to a conversation. I'm sorry. Therefore, liberation spiritually adheres to a conversion, revolution, and forgiveness process. From a liberation theological perspective, the people's forgiveness of their oppressors is based on their trust in the relational communal fabric of both divine and human life well lived. Um, th there's some more, I guess, that we could go on to say as well. But I think that's really fascinating to, to lay out that, um, I don't know, that kind of process, I suppose, the conversion, revolution and forgiveness process um, is, I think, I mean, I mean, all all of the the conversation we, we the conversation we just had, um, you know, aside about prisons, that's like an abolition process, right? That's uh, that's breaking yeah. the cycle of oppression. That's breaking the cycle of, I mean, criminality for sure. Mm -hmm. um, the, you know, being converted to a type of being in the world where you're in solidarity with other people, um, accepting that the their revolution, that their liberation is a part of your own, and then also understanding that the people that you are overthrowing, that you're liberating yourself from. Are people who are hurt by the same system of injustice that you are that's super important um and i am here for it and i, I think that is a particular um observation of christians doing politics that um that you wouldn't get uh from i don't know <laughs> other maybe just other communists yeah no i think that's exactly right uh it's interesting too i mean like you said there's a thousand other things we've talked about in this book but um, the way that we didn't really even talk about this much at all. We've been talking about all the stuff you learned about Nicaragua, but the way that the collective also kind of reflects that back on their own read of the United States is also very interesting. You yeah. know, it's, it's a lot of contrast and, uh, figuring out, okay, so in Nicaragua, that's a society of, of revolutionary forgiveness, um, the United States, though, is not that way. It is a society of, they, they have lots of interesting words for it. It's like, you know, a society of punishment. They talk about the prison system in the U.S. Um, they uh, they refer to St. Augustine talking about the human race as the massa damnata, and they're like, that is like the United States, right? <laughs> Everybody <laughs> is condemned, essentially. Uh, so it's really interesting to hear them talk about that. Uh, it's cool to hear them talk more also about um, gender issues in the United States, uh, their own kind of experiences in the U.S., and what it means to theologically reflect from a U.S. perspective. So I think that's another contribution to the book that is like worth kind of picking up a little bit more and, and thinking about it. I mean, the book is like over 30 years old now, right? It was published in 1987 originally, but um, so many of that, so much of that stuff just remains the same, unfortunately. And 
nevertheless, it's it's really good to kind of see that different model of like theologizing about our situation now. And yeah, it's it's really neat to just kind of have the, the the ability to be a fly on the wall of like a conversation between you know, a bunch of women thinking about what it means to be U.S. citizens who have been to Nicaragua a bunch. Yeah, totally. Well, I mean, it's such an interesting book because, right, it's about Nicaragua. It's about um, this, like, sort of liberation feminist perspective on liberation theology. Uh, But I think it has so much to say to, I mean, just uh, our understanding of politics in general. I think it's a great book. I'm so energized by it. Honestly, I am really excited to tell other people about it. (laughs) Yeah, I'm going to put it. I just got added to my uh, my church's millennial group chat. I'm going to tell them all about it. I'm going to become the worst and most annoying person in that group chat. (laughs) That's great. Uh, That's what you got to do. We got to get this book out there in the the group chat for sure. Um, And we got to create a a bunch of new writing collectives and people can go on solidarity trips and write really good books after several trips taken together. So start the work now so that we can all have a bunch of books from different countries in like 10 years. Maybe that should be the, the big <laughs> Magnificast uh, writing plot. Yeah, a great plan. All right, folks. Well, we learned a lot in this episode. Um, we've come a long way since the beginning when we were just telling you about what the Nicaraguan Revolution was about. And now we're at the end and we're, we're learning of big lessons about um, uh, conversion, revolution, and liberation. Um, I'm sorry, conversion, revolution, and forgiveness. Those are the big three. Get them tattooed on your arm and <laughs> never forget them like I just did. All right. Um, Thanks for listening to Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash the Magnificast. Or if you don't want to do that, that's fine. You can also just give us a nice iTunes review or a review on some other platform. I'm sure they all count in the grand scheme of things. <laughs> uh, maybe not. Who knows? Honestly, it's uh, it's anyone's guess how the algorithm works. And I certainly don't know. Our intro music is by Amaria Armstrong. And our outro music is by The Illogical Spoon. We'll see you next week. Church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation. Never get tired, never bored. Don't worry, someday there'll be no dam between us and our Lord. Jackson, keep your hoods up. Keep your hoods up and you stay up late in Jackson. You keep your hoods up, well you keep your hoods up and you stay up late. Oh, don't mind a cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon. So come on now, it's still early. Least I would have